Welcome to Green Focus, a new podcast that aims to discover and showcase transformative Israeli green technology in order to understand it better and help leverage this technology to make a positive impact on our planet. Each episode will take a fresh look at the innovation and business impact happening in the green tech sector with guests including VCs, founders, technologists, and climate activists. In these conversations, we aim to discuss the pathways for leveraging cutting-edge innovation to attract investment and do business globally. And now, introducing the host of Green Focus and CEO of Focus IP, Yaron Damelin. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, everybody. 24th of November, and welcome to another episode of the Green Focus podcast, hosted by me, Yaron Damelin. Um, I'm CEO of Focus IP. It's an IP management consultancy based in Israel. And the aim of this podcast is to discover and showcase transformative Israeli green tech and help advance this ecosystem to make a serious green impact together with impactors and leaders in the space. And so today's guest is Jack Levy. Uh, hi, Jack. How Jack are you, is Yaron? a <clears throat> corporate lawyer, an experienced corporate lawyer, and he's founding partner of More VC. All right, a little bit, Jack, a little bit of introduction. Um, More VC invests in pre seed, seed, and early stage Israeli technology startups. And he's a board member on multiple companies, extensive experience in building high growth companies and leading management teams through successful capital raising. That's part of your CV, Jack. Um, and I know you well for many, many years as well as a friend in the community. Um, and I've noticed that you have focused over the years on many spaces um, in terms of sustainability related. More recently, I would say on agri-tech, food tech, mobility, et cetera. Um, obviously, I look forward to hearing more from you about these things. But I want to explore today um, your kind of uh, interfacing with the innovators of sustainable technology. Okay, you've got us from your side, from an investor point of view, um, what's your narrative? How do you see, how do you as a person and how do you as more VC as an entity work to maximize the impact of these technologies on our planet? And so let's start off with that. Jack, who are you and what is your vision? Well, I mean, who am I? That makes me think about going, you know, way back. I'm, I'm, I'm an American, I'm an Israeli. Right. I, I came here when I was 33. I'm now 52. Uh, I've got three kids, 24, 22, 18 and a half. Uh, I've got one, you know, fighters after the army. So I think that's when you realize you're really Israeli. Um, and uh, I I'm lucky in terms of my connection to green tech and clean tech or climate tech or planet tech. And trust me, I've been through all the names. Right. Because um, our firm initially, as you know, your own was called Israel Clean Tech Ventures, and as we sort of broadened yes. our scope a little bit, we <clears throat> we 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 rebranded under More VC, but we're still very active. And I think you noted very well that we've more been focused on the food and the ag and the mobility. Although most recently, and we'll talk about this, we also did our first carbon removal uh, technology investment as well in a company called Carbon Blue. So. I got into this whole field, uh, as I think many people do, through a relationship. And that is my college roommate, who's a fellow named Sanjay Wagle, one of my best friends, lives out in San Francisco. Um, interesting guy. Uh, he uh, was always an environmentally conscious, and he was one of the first clean tech investors. He was at one of the firms that was one of the first clean tech investors on the West Coast. 
a fund called Expansion Capital. This is like in 2003, 2004, after he went to Haas Business School, where you're there, his sort of focus was on a wave power technology company. So he was really an early into this from an investor perspective. He subsequently went into the Obama administration at the Department of Energy when they launched ARPA-E, which is like the DARPA program for energy. And they're sort of, you know, moon, supporting moonshot opportunities um, and next generation research opportunities really out of universities for that. And by the way, at the same time, I was here in Israel and, and he was saying, look, we're seeing interesting things <clears throat> in Israel applying for ARPA-E grants, or we're seeing interesting things in Israel trying to raise money on the West Coast. And there's no Israeli company that's an uh, investor that's focused on this. And I said, hmm, that sounds interesting. As an investor, you're looking to focus earlier than everybody else. That's critical, right? You want to get into the trend, the opportunity, the company, whatever it is, before everybody else has seen its potential. And then you want them to catch up. And that's what effectively drives the the price of the stock up and drives your return. And I said, okay, if nobody's looking at it, let's take a look at it. And at that time, my partner, Mayor, and I, we were potentially going to join a different fund. And, and we literally just started driving around the country um, in his uh, Mitsubishi. It was like an old station wagon to, to, to find these these companies in Israel that were focused on this because they were being ignored. They were, or they certainly, I don't know if they were being ignored, but they certainly weren't being focused on by the then two and a half billion dollars or so of venture capital. This is like 2006, you know, that was focused here. And which was all at the time looking at, you know, software and internet and communications and, and some hardware as well, but not energy, water, agriculture. At the same time, however, in Israel, we had global leaders in some of those areas. Okay, so we had, you know, Ormat, which was a global leader in the geothermal space. We had Nitafim um, and Metzoplast and others in, in the agricultural space, certainly global, global leaders. So there was this management team capability on older, not venture back, but older, slower growth, kibbutz backed, industrial backed, whatever. Israel Chemicals, a massive player in the agricultural space, Mahdi Magan, which became Adama. So we saw the potential that these worlds would start to collide and the tech world also and everything that it was doing would start to have applications in these other worlds, applications meaning sensors and, and measurement and data that they were doing in other areas would become even more relevant as sustainability became more and more important. So that was the opportunity that we saw. And uh, that's how we that's how we started out. So I give a lot of credit. I call Sanjay the godfather of clean tech. And we were the first. And there was another there was another fund that started shortly thereafter us. And they remain good friends to this day called Terra Ventures. And of course, subsequent to that, lots of other investors, you know, got involved. And it went, you know, we went through some ups, we went through some downs. And we're most definitely on a, on a very nice uptick at this point in time in terms of both the pace of investing and what I would say is particularly the quality of the entrepreneurs. You ask, you know, what do we look for? How do we focus, right? It's like, we are early stage investors. We are pre-seed and seed investors. We are investing in people. And, and I can tell you that the, the quality, the intellectual firepower, the management experience, the, the, the depth of the people that are now trying to start companies in this area is markedly better than it was when we first started out 10 to 15 years ago. So that's exciting. Jack, so let me just focus on one or two points that you raised there. One of them, um, and that was one of my other questions, uh, what are you looking at when you invest in a startup? Um, 
And the reason I'm going to skipping to that question is what you mentioned now. You said the firepower of the people. Um, have you noticed that people are kind of the strong people in this sector because um, because there's more experience now in Israel with that and because there's more energy going there now? Or is it because people are also jumping fields? They experience entrepreneurs from other fields who've now entered this green tech space because it's hot and cool and wanted or anything else like that? Yeah, I, I think it's both. And I think it's in particular, I'll say, that as, as you know, and as you may have spoken to your you know, viewers in the past, right? The uh, a lot of the tech talent in this country does stun out from certain military intelligence units where they really have these amazing intense experiences, and and a lot of these people serve well beyond three years, five years, ten years, you know, in, in some of these areas, uh, the two hundreds, the ones, and in other areas, and I and so lots of those people who really are kind of the best and the brightest, like the Talpiot program, okay, which is a very well-known program here in Israel that selects 50 students a year to go start studying math and physics and then computer science sometimes, and then really gives them almost like a pick of the litter of what they're going to do in their military service. There's now a whole Talpiot community focused on climate tech, and you give credit to their alumni network, and there's a one particular person named Ram Amar who has a, a very interesting company called Rewind, but it's not, he's kind of catalyzed a lot of this interest and activity. And the answer is, you know, it's it's not because it's cool, it's because these people are, are want to make a difference, They and they made a difference in a very important area that's very close to their heart, which is security, and a lot of them served 10 years at least, you know, and now they want to make a difference. Um, and they really, they're walking into our office and saying, we're doing something that we think is going to make a difference for our children and our grandchildren, not to mention the fact that we think, as does Larry Fink from BlackRock, you know, that's one of the biggest economic opportunities for the next 20, 30 years. So <laughs> I have this ability to work on something that I'm passionate on and work on something that I think is going to be extraordinarily economically successful. What a wonderful opportunity. It's hard. And we can come back and talk about all of the challenges of what makes this so much harder than other areas, where, which are also very meaningful, like cyber or digital health or, or, or insure tech or what have you, right? But there is definitely a trend, particularly in the past two to three years, uh, of people coming into climate tech. I'll say one other thing, which is I honestly think people see it. They just see the climate change. I, I, I remember two summers ago, my wife and I were planning a trip to the, the, not this summer, but the past one, we were going to go to Europe for the summer and we couldn't go. We were, we had tickets and, and reservations for Northern Greece and Northern Greece was on fire. And basically the guy called us and said, not, he said, you can't come. I have no air conditioning. And so then we looked all around Europe. Where else could we go? Well, you couldn't go to nor at the time, North, uh, uh, uh Western Europe, because that was all flooded. <laughs> right. So it's sort of like, this is flooded. This is on fire. It's here. We need to. We need to act. And these are very, very motivated people uh, who are used to tackling tackling significant challenges. So that's exciting. That is very exciting to see that kind of talent and that kind of those kinds of networks um, get involved in this space. You know, one of those uh, on the side of one of your points. I've got. I've got this little theory. Okay. Um, that we, you know, we've always had in Israel um, a lot of um, as a firepower coming out of um, army graduates, you know, especially technology ones um, from all the experiences that they've had in the army and the technology experience in the army and coming to program on the outside of the army. 
it's interesting about sustainability because when uh, we talk sustainability, somehow the armies of the world seem to be the last ones who are ever going to arrive there. Uh, you know, and the challenges of how to actually make a sustainable army that is way beyond my pay grade at the moment. But it's almost thinking a reactionary kind of response from all these youngsters who are technically technologically very smart. And they come out of a place which is really backward in terms of uh, futuristic sustainability thinking. And then they maybe kind of rebound and say, oh, we got to change that. So I'm wondering uh, when that's going to kick in. Well, it's, I mean, look, it's interesting that you mentioned it. I mean, the IDF has had a like a, a, a person responsible for green and sustainability for many years. I, I haven't met the current one. I've met people in the past. I've also remember they used to launch awards and prizes for some of the, the greenest invention within the army. I do remember one year where it was um, this uh, particular what, what one. It was something that kind of was like sprinkling a little bit of water ahead of the tanks and therefore causing a hell of a lot less dust kick up, which mm -hmm. is a very big environmentally uh, negative, not a carbon problem. Right. Just an environmentally negative for air quality and the like the pudra and all that. Right. So the but um, I absolutely believe that the military is a place to start as early adopters for some of these things. And I can tell you, by the way, that in the wave of 2005 to 2010 biofuels, um, the U.S. Navy was the was the early adopter customer for a lot of the biodiesel that was being worked on at the time. A, a, a one company in America that went public called Solazine, that was their contract. And, and the reason is, you know, they they wanted this. They saw the triple benefit for them, right? In other words, thinking about mm -hmm. geopolitically and geostrategically, the U.S.'s ability to try to generate additional energy independence and all the like. And of course, what happened was fracking came along and that helped, you know, it was very harmful environmentally, but it certainly helped with energy independence for a little while. But um but 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 the, yeah, the, I think that the militaries are. I, I'll just or I'll just give you another example, right? If you think about a forward military base again, I'll use the American example. Like you know, in in okay, America's pulled back now from Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, think about what the cost of fuel is at the edge over there. It's it's not you know two dollars a gallon or four dollars a gallon. It's a hundred dollars a gallon when you put together the shipping, the security to bring it to that forward mm. base, and et cetera. So. If there were alternative sources of fuel, of course, it makes sense. By the way, solar power, for sure, U.S. commando forces and the like have always used that because remote power and the like. So I do believe that that is a place that they should be focused on. But I will say one thing, and this is critical to say, and maybe it's it, 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 which is technology is amazing. And, 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 and we're going to talk more about it here. And we'll talk maybe about a couple of examples. But to solve the, the 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 global warming problem that we have if we do not do it with smart policy we're going to get nowhere and i'll give you just a parallel with that like in the the water crisis that we have had in israel in the past we're, we're never going to be out of it entirely but it is it, we solved it for a very long period of time but with with technology of course with desalination but it wasn't such advanced tech that was existing technology yes we used new, some innovative things and every plant that we built, the cost you know, per cubic meter of water that we were desalinating was a little bit cheaper. But the bottom line is the government just said, this is something that we have to do. We're pushing for it. We're, we're, we're gonna get the permitting up and down the coastline. We're gonna do the tenders and we're gonna make this happen. Mm. And, and, and we need that kind of political and policy resolve 
globally to solve this problem as well. Of course, that's extraordinarily hard. We just have the COPE event and, and we'll keep on having those. We get better every year, but it's still, that's still an area of challenge. Okay, fantastic. Just while I wait you on that point of that, I want to close my window because there are amazing birds outside, but I assume they may be interfering with the, with oh, the okay. audio. No, so, yeah, no problem. I haven't heard them, but no problem. Yeah. I'm sure Bob will be able to take care of this one. As much as I'm appreciating the birds, they may be um, contributing a bit too much to the tweet to the tweeting of this of the session. Um, good. You mentioned one other thing, which was quite um, um, it's an obvious point, but I want to focus on it a second, and that is when you spoke about the uh, investment community, and especially you as an investor in kind of a you know, pre-seed and very early stage, you really have to be ahead of the curve. Okay, at least you aim to be ahead of the curve. Um, and that's quite, it's fascinating. How do you get ahead of such a curve? Uh, what is what is your tactic for kind of seeing in the future? I, so I don't, it's a great question because I've said this many times. I don't, there are, there are uh, pre-seed and seed investors who are originally themselves technologists, okay, or scientists or, you know, who sort of know, uh, uh, have, a, have a bit of a roadmap about where the science is going. Of course, if you spend a lot of time in this as a non-scientist or non-engineer, you, you get to learn that a little bit. Um, but um, I am focused on, it's, it's, my, it's my entrepreneurs and the founders who see the future by me. And, and it's my job to find them, right? I don't, and, and so I, I get to see the future because it's walking into my office every day. My job is to make sure that they're walking into my office first early enough so that I get access to the deal so that I have the opportunity to evaluate it. Of course, I maintain a huge network of advisors um, to then ultimately help analyze that, um, uh, whether the, some of them are scientists and academics, some of them are engineers, some of them are past entrepreneurs, some of them are current entrepreneurs. I just got off of a call this morning where I was talking to the founder of Carbon Blue, um, which is one of our carbon removal technology companies. And I told him about a different carbon removal technology company that I saw yesterday. And he's somebody that can help me take a look at that. So they're the ones that are really seeing the where the, you know, and, and by the way, where the future is. And, and, and of course, the big challenge as an investor is not to invest too far ahead of the future, because <clears throat> if it's either the technology is not as feasible as he thought or just the rest of the world doesn't think it's going to be feasible. You won't be able to fund it to continue to make it feasible. It's it's a it's a uh, it, it you know it's a, there's that metaphor of Gretzky, the great hockey player, who says you know I skated to where the puck was going. Right, that's what we have to do as early stage investors. It is hard. I don't think I'm a, I'm not Wayne Gretzky, uh, certainly not in hockey, and I'm not and I'm not even that as an investor. But I think. What we do a very good job at is because we're really strong and good, good, good partners for entrepreneurs at an early stage as mentors, as supporters, as people who have just been doing this and seen this, the ups, the downs, the challenges, the very personal challenges, by the way, of, 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 of failing and then turning around and succeeding and picking up. I think that we have a very good uh, reputation to get those people to want to partner with us. And then when they come into our office and they talk about how this is where, you know, the the, the world of green hydrogen is going, or this is where the world of um, next generation alternative proteins, you know, milk from the uh, milk from fermenters as opposed mm -hmm. to from cows. 
Okay, so I've heard about that a little bit in the past, but I'm not the one that's staying on top of the latest articles in nature or in science or whatever. I'm, I, I then have to then bring somebody who can check out and say, you know, and it's my ch job to sort of analyze that consulting assessment of the of the potential. I'll say one thing just about that as well, because I think this could be helpful for people that I, I whenever I take an external consultant, I always tell them, I want you to tell me why this thing is horrible. Right. And like, I want you to really just point out all the not not horrible, but I want you to point out all the warts and all of the issues. But yet you can see sometimes when they get that glimmer in their eye of like, oh, wow, this one really appeals to me. And, and it's not that off. It's not that it, it, it's not that infrequent. It is frequent or, or it happens a lot that the consultant ends up, stop, you know, does the job for us and then becomes a consultant to the company afterwards because they're so excited about the project. And that's when, you know, maybe you have something that's uh, uh, that's a particular interest. But I do. You also have to know who you're hiring as a consultant, right? Because there are some people that are always going to be extraordinarily skeptical, and there are some people that are always going to be enamored by new technology, and you have to have a, a sense of who you're talking to. So those are the people that really see the future and live in the future. My job is to see them and, and have a good sense of when to make the actual bet on, on, on them and, and how to analyze it. Okay, I mean, it's really interesting because... I can identify it from my point of view. I, I'm, as you know, in the field of intellectual property and uh, I do IP management consulting and I actually have not got a strong technical background. And so I'm kind of an exceptional uh, player in the field because I kind of come to it with a business look and a kind of a business perspective, so to speak. So I'm not the one who's, uh, once again, inventing all the technology, so to speak, but I'm kind of just trying to like, translate the that perspective from these uh, real technological people and put it into some kind of a market and, and real day sense. So, so I do think I can understand where you're coming from in that, and it gives me some grace and some good feeling that uh, good we're 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 kindred spirits maybe on that dimension. Absolutely. Okay. Now moving into one of the other questions, right? Um, we spoke actually at the beginning of our call before we even started recording about the a lot of pessimism in the marketplace at the moment okay uh, obviously we're looking at um you know global recession or at least talk of global recession um and we're talking about ups and downs and insecurities and we don't know what's really cutting out there and um the, we're also seeing a, a huge uh, green energy uh, you know um backlash we're talking about the world that such great hopes for the last two years and suddenly this uh, uh, russian invasion of ukraine comes along and uh, and Europeans are starting to refire their coal plants. So um, with all of that in place, how do you understand today's uh, green tech market and investing investment environment? How has this changed things for you, or what does this tell you? So a couple of parts to that question. So let, let's start with the energy, uh, um, the specific energy one with a specific focus in Europe, and and and. Um, you know, energy independence versus green energy and the like. I, you know, uh, Tom Friedman from the New York Times wrote a good piece about this about six weeks or so ago, where he sort of said, look, there are five, I, I don't remember what all five were, there are five things that we all would want. We want our energy independence and we want our energy to be green and we don't want to be working with uh, oligarchical uh, or corrupt uh, regimes. And we want all, every energy partner that we have to be a human rights supporter and all that. And we, we can't have it all. It's not, the world isn't set up that way. And so we, we have to make... Um, uh, 
some compromises that uh, we can't be strident, uh, you know, in, in all of these things. Are we, and then there's the nuclear question, right, which I've always been one to believe that nuclear should be a part of the answer. And I think that um, it, it, it does have from a carbon perspective, you know, a much better uh, profile and situation. And I think that, um, uh, you know, that there's it's a tragedy to some extent, uh, certainly in the United States. I, my uncle was uh, is a nuclear physicist and his first day on the job after his Ph.D. was like in I think it was probably around 1977 or 78 when Three Mile Island incident happened in the United States. And oh, as a result, he spent a career of 25, 30 years at the Nuclear Regulatory Agency, not building another nuclear power plant when he could have been there building 30. And instead, he spent it, you know, sort of just regulating and, and pushing paper around and i don't mean to of course minimize the safety issues around this not at all but i do think that they're manageable and i think that we have that technology and so i i'm supportive of europe's you know sort of additional focus on that but i i, I think that um and, and let's let's also understand that cheap energy is what's driven the possibility of bringing billions of people out of poverty and into you know a better life so, of course, politicians are always going to be looking to try to keep energy cheap. And, 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 and if that means firing up coal power plants so that, you know, uh, even if there is some long term economic damage, there's, we have that tension. It's like if we don't have if, if we don't find a way to solve for some of the energy gaps, you know, there's going to be human suffering as well. So we can't always be strident about, no, it has to be this or, you know, it. it, it I think that we did make some mistakes about not planning for this transition um, over a longer period of time. But I also think, okay, I also think that carbon and greenhouse gases are the ultimate externality. And I learned economics from a conservative professor. Martin Feldstein was my professor. He was Ronald Reagan's economic advisor. This was no, you know, bleeding heart liberal economist. And he explains to me, and I can almost even remember the various graphs that you put up in economics and this. when there's an externality, which means a tragedy of the commons and nobody is paying for the damage, it needs to be priced into the product. And so I absolutely believe in a carbon tax and nobody even talks about it, but that's what we need. And it's not going to happen because the political willpower isn't there to bring, make it happen. But little by little, we're finding other ways to chip at that problem with carbon markets and offsets and, the, and, and, and corporations are trying to bring it in. It should be globally mandated. It should be a big part of it. It's not going to happen. It's a problem that it's not happening. And I'll, I'll, I'll say something else also, again, how, about how policy and technology sort of interface. I mean, China, and this hurt my first fund, okay? It's well-known story how China took the PV photovoltaic manufacturing market away from everybody else, okay? the There were great European companies, one called Q-Cells, and there were some really interesting U.S. companies um, the thin film one uh, is escaping me right now. First Solar, right, in the U.S. These were companies that were doing sort of next generation, more effective and efficient uh, solar cells. The Chinese looked at all of this. They didn't have that technology, but what they had was free capital, effectively, to build so many plants to drive the cost down significantly so that everybody that was installing photovoltaic panels which initially wasn't terribly economically effective, started installing Chinese ones because they were cheap. And so the, what they did by doing that was something that was completely illegal from an international trade perspective, okay, and wrong. But on the other hand, it served humanity. It certainly served them. It served humanity because it drove adoption of PV up significantly. So 
it's it's a problem because act state actors especially those that really want to capture something can act in unfair ways and i think it's like so if certain countries were to impose carbon taxes other countries would not and they would become energy exporters to those that you know so it's a it's a challenge of how do you get the regulatory and the green and the need for cheap energy for for human progress uh, but on the other hand the the externality that the that the that the fossil fuel cheap energies are causing how do you get that all together it's a it's the challenge of our time i'm i'm very uh i believe frankly that if the western company the western countries led with carbon taxes we would innovate and we would then have innovative technologies to then sell to the rest of the world as they started to get on board. I think that it's not a bad idea, but a lot of people would never go in that direction. I, I, I'm frustrated, frankly, with Israel. We want to, we go to cope and, I, and, and I'm a fan of us walking into these events. You know, Naftali Bennett, our last prime minister, went to Glasgow and said, Israeli technology, I'm going to come. And he did a great thing. He said, I'm going to get the best Israeli entrepreneurs to focus on these areas, especially the serial ones. And he himself, by the way, right, was a serial entrepreneur before he became a politician. And I think that was inspiring. And I think that he, he that, but at the same time, I'm like, that's great, but now you're a politician. Why don't you come back home and push for some serious environmental regulations over here, which will constrain us and it will be hard for us. I get that, but we will innovate around the hard and we will innovate around the constraints. We'll do something better for our own country in terms of our own environmental consciousness. And then we'll export those technologies as well. And so politicians, you know, need the willpower to, to do that in certain areas of the world, the, the their constituents demand it. And that's why Germany and the Nordics are leaders in all of this, because their constituents demand it. They demand green from their politicians. Um, I hope that that trend continues everywhere. So anyway, that's a bit of a just one of you touched on the recession and, and all of that. I, yeah. I will say this, <clears throat> if in the fundraising environment, if you're an entrepreneur now and you're thinking about starting a company, if you were thinking about starting an enterprise SaaS company right now, you're going to be much more depressed than if you're thinking about starting a climate tech or, or green tech or ag tech or food tech company right now. There is, the money flow into the, into the areas of climate, food, agriculture has not, it never peaked the way that it did in climate, but it, but it is not dropped off as much as well. New funds are being raised. New funds are coming across in Israel. There's a new food tech fund that just started investing or just announced in Israel run by, uh, 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 interestingly enough, Omri Sharon, that's Ariel Sharon's mm -hmm. son, and Nadav Perez, Sami Perez's son or, or Shimon Peres' grandson. So it's a nice kind of two political oh. families coming together and they're funding food tech in Israel. It's the the, the main areas that are, I think, uh, really kind of peaked in the bubble and are and came back down to earth are the enterprise SaaS uh, stuff. And they'll be fine also. It's just that they have to realize that the past two to three years was an anomaly there in terms of multiples and in terms of valuations and in terms of buying and, and, and that's going to return back down to earth. The, the companies in... in agricultural, food, whatever, they never had those bubbly peaks. Well, some maybe did, you could argue in the alternative protein space, but there, there are, um, uh, generally speaking, there are major, major market trends that are on the consumer side as well that are driving those technologies forward. So is, I'd be, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that optimism because uh, at least in this sector, um, uh, from an investment standpoint, there is money around, there's, a, there's yes. investment that wants to pour into these things. 
Um, interestingly enough, um, relating to one of the points you made, um, you know, the, the policy argument that lots of countries, um, the constituents are pushing them to make in the Scandinavian countries, for example, they've pushed it ahead of the curve. But the fact is that there's a big issue we have in just in gaps between certain markets, right? Because there isn't this universal adoption of different standards. So even though, for example, the price of carbon, um, you know, that countries are charging um, is vastly different. You know, from South Africa, it's around uh, $10 a ton or something compared right. to Sweden, which is, uh, you know, more than 10 times that. And that right. causes a kind of triage effect where people will start exporting their, their carbon problems and they cost them more else. So we're going to do is kick the, the can down the road again. And so we need to find some kind of recipe to doing it. By the way, I've been trying to make some effort in that direction. I don't know if you saw, um, I recently published a whole uh, paper about the 10 commitments, it's about the 10 green commitments inspired by the 10 commandments. And it's a whole um, nice. kind of uh, platform I'm trying to put together to try and push a kind of universalizing message where we've got to find a consensus on certain grounds around sustainability being kind of the original commandments that we have preceding the Torah, okay, which were for Adam and Eve to kind of look after the garden while they do their economic thing nice. of, of nice. making humanity kind of become scientific and progressive. Um, anyway, it's a whole challenge. It's a whole shtick that Very I've got. Nice. But, uh, nice. but we do need some buy-in and we need to kind of find some consensus, even though there's a big question of eco-justice, right? Happened the big uh, rich Western countries have been polluting the world for 100 years suddenly come and demand the same standard as uh, poor developing countries who are in a different plane. On the other hand, we can't exclude that and we can't ignore that. So we need to we need to find the consensus point where we can kind of agree. So there's a lot to talk about and I could relate to lots of your points that you made, but um, in the interest of trying to flow through this and not take too long from your time or that of the listeners afterwards, I want to move to one or two other questions. Um, first of all, uh, how do you see Israeli green tech companies kind of um, competing on a global scale when you compare them with other countries and technologies being developed, whether from Scandinavia or elsewhere? Look, so I think some Israeli companies, the, the biggest example of the most successful one, obviously, is SolarEdge. Um, and uh, some Israeli companies have really managed to position themselves, you know, Nitafim, obviously, over many, many years is another great example, and others position themselves as global leaders with their headquarters over here with uh, you know, management teams. It's nice that these are these are global markets that we're talking about, right? And so when they're global markets, you can be based in Israel and you can be traveling east or west, okay? One of our companies, for example, Groundwork Bioag, which is off to a very, very great start and just raised a nice amount of money and doing something extraordinarily sustainable, has sales in all of the big agricultural markets. So that's not just the United States, that's the United States, Brazil, India, China, um, Ukraine, actually, okay? Even, even with all that's going on right now, that's obviously a, a massive agricultural market. So I think that you can create um, global leaders out of Israel. It's taking, it will take time. It's taking time. Certainly in the alternative protein space, we have a global leading reputation with companies like Imagine Dairy and, and, and Olive Farms, which is even ahead of Imagine Dairy and Future Meat and others and like. I think the real way that Israelis are going to succeed in these markets, of course, is through partnering. So, for example, if you ask me who do I think are going to be the leaders in carbon removal technologies and, and, and projects down the road, I think it's the oil and gas companies. I think the same companies that took the hydrocarbons out of the earth are going to put the carbons back in it. And I think that 
it, it, it's because we have such a strong reputation for out of the box innovation and daring and, and there's not a single oil major that doesn't come over to Israel with their venturing team or their innovation team and look for things. Uh, and that's so different than it was 15 years ago. I mean, I can tell you, I had one of the majors as an investor in our second fund. And at the time that it happened, they were very nervous because they were, you know, oil, large oil and gas companies sometimes can get taxed in different states because they, they you know, and then and then the state will try to overreach and tax them even on things that are activities are not in the states. And the, that company wanted a strong legal opinion that just by investing as a limited partner in our fund, which wasn't even an Israeli entity that they weren't exposing. And now here we are, and that same group has made direct investments in Israel. Okay, like they've invested directly, not just through a fund, and um, in 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 um, in um, store dots. Okay, in 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 a battery technology company, and uh, you name it: Shell, Chevron, uh, um, BP, uh, Total. They've all been here. They're all looking for interesting things, particularly around carbon removal and electrochemistry and like. So the way I think that the Israeli companies, the emerging Israeli companies are going to win in these markets is with partnerships, strong partnerships. And people are here to partner. They are all looking, uh, whether it's on the, you know, that, that's for like carbon removal and upstream, but it's also for Oh, and obviously in the, in the, in the vehicle space, right? I mean, it's not just that we have, uh, partnerships between a lot of the next generation mobility companies. We also have General Motors Research Center here, which now has, what is it, like 80, 90 PhDs, 100 maybe even, you know, sitting in Herzliya. And General Motors has made it very clear that their entire future is electric. So I think that we have, we're positioned well. We're positioned well um, with partnerships, with multinationals uh, to create a few, uh, uh, hopefully another, you know, five or so solar edge like outcomes over the next uh five to ten years okay Maybe great. Ten. That, that, that's Maybe amazing ten. and i really welcome the, the that information that you provided about the big um energy companies who are here scouting okay um i i too share that belief with you that um you know to to just um criticize and mock and smash all the fossil fuel companies that all the damage they've done in the past it doesn't mean that's wrong to criticize what they've done in the past um, but uh, they are going to be the ones who are going to be responsible for a lot of the problem solving going forward. Um, it's, a di it's, it's, it's in both directions. On the one hand, the faster that they move forward, the less they continue to pollute. On the other hand, they've got resources. Okay? Um, I was actually just thinking when you said that, they've actually got the physical resources, right? They talk about, for example, burying carbon in mines. Well, who owns all these mines? No, exactly. Or, got all these or, or, that they're or, burying, or burying carbon in the same... Uh, oil and gas fields where they took the oil and gas out of, indeed, which they indeed. do, because of it, they use they use they already inject CO two for processes called enhanced oil recovery, and 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 green people will 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 criticize all of that, and I understand that it's I understand that there's problems with enhanced oil recovery, but I'm not talking about I'm talking about using some of those facilities, like you said, for actual carbon storage of of CO two gas and capping them, and 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 these are areas that have to develop and and they're going to be they're the most they have the engineering talent and scale to push these things forward okay great so that, that's uh we, i share that that vision entirely and it's it's a really interesting point and i think when uh, from our tradition we've got this idea of uh tshuva, repentance so to speak right and that means that um 
know, one of the, the famous commenters, the Rambam, he came along and he said, how do you know if someone's really done this? Because the, if they were being in the same situation again, they wouldn't do it again. Okay, that like it's an indication that they've really come around. Okay, and in this case here, once again, it's almost um, could be quite an ironic point that those same companies who, who took out all the carbon, released it into the world, did all this damage and built all these big things could be the ones to plug it back in and to help us kind of like uh, solve that problem because they, they're in that position to do it, okay? So I hope, I hope they are coming along and coming over and wanting to really, really sincerely get involved in how to fix this mess that they've caused, um, you know, because they're going to be one of the big solvers as well, okay? Yeah. So it's really interesting, that point. Um, you know, once again, we are, I'm actually going to skip quite a few things I wanted to ask you because um, there's been such fascinating stuff to discuss. We but can do it again. What, what is one of the challenges? How could we challenge um, kind of technology listeners of this podcast in Israel, entrepreneurs of the future? What challenge would you throw out to them in order to try and uh, boost the, the spirit of entrepreneurship in this country? I mean, you're saying like a, a specific technology challenge that I think require, would be good for new entrepreneurs to focus on. Is that uh, is that? Well, let me go. I, I was gonna I was gonna ask that before, and I've I've kind of heard the word uh, carbon sequestration sequestration yeah. kind of for a long time. That's something which I understand is close to your heart. But yeah. um, beyond the actual technology sector, what challenge uh, would you set out to a future entrepreneur in the space? Something that a bone you could throw them and say, "Hey, catch this." Uh, in terms of trying to get, really get to that global level of uh, of leadership? Yeah, I think that the Israeli entrepreneur often starts with a strong technology uh, focus and less the business. The, the, I, I think the challenge is just to make sure that you're that you know how to partner. And, and when you know how to partner, that means both what you never do up front. That's like an area where I think, you know, Focus IP probably can help a lot as well in terms of like, don't poison your IP. You'll never bring returns to your investors if somehow you have compromised your own core, the, the, the core intellectual property, the core invention that you have in your technology. If somehow you have allowed somebody to out-invent it because you haven't protected it properly, or if you've allowed somebody to get access to it because you've done some joint IP work with them and they get some ownership over it, you're in trouble. And these are conversations that we just, I literally had one of these this morning, um, because, but because at the same time, you need to partner to succeed. So you have to partner the right way. You have to know what your partner is looking for, what they'll be able to commercialize and benefit from, how the two of you will benefit together if you do some joint development. There's no especially in these areas um uh there there is no product that sells like independently a lot of these products are part of larger projects i mean even if you go back to uh solar edge right i mean they developed effectively like a micro inverter and so they had to be partnering with the panel manufacturers and they actually uh, they ultimately developed their own inverter. We backed, by the way, a competitor of theirs, which was actually partnering with inverter companies as well, right? And, and that competitor did okay. Not, unfortunately, not quite as well as SolarEdge. But um, the, so I think that re you, you have to recognize that if you're working in this area of whether it's food tech or whether it's agri-tech or whether it's energy-related, 
that all of them have significant environmental uh, you know, benefits to the next generation of technologies, you will be partnering with, with behemoths very early on. If you're in food tech, you'll be partnering with the ingredient companies or with the consumer packaging good companies, or sometimes with engineering companies, because you'll have developed a new uh, process and you need uh, an engineering firm to be the ones to manufacture the equipment to, to work for your process. Uh, right. The same thing, I think, in anything that's you know, electrochemical related or chemical related. And, and so I think that's as a, as a founder, don't just only think about your own invention, you know, think about what are the best partnering strategies generically focus on that, learn that, study that, um, you know, in Israel, for example, one of the best uh, economic commercial successes that ever came out of the country is Copaxone, right? The MS drug that Teva developed. I happen to have been a young lawyer in the United States working for the law firm that represented Teva. So I know all of the different partnering agreements that Teva did to bring that product, or I knew back in 90, from 96 to 99, to bring that product to the world. And my God, it's, it, there were a lot of them, right? Hechs, Marion, Roussel, these are names that are sort of, they've all merged into different companies at this point in time. But Teva brought the product to market in the United States with one partner and in Russia with a different partner, in Europe with a third partner. And of course, the entire... Copaxone itself was a joint development between the Weizmann Institute and Teva. And, and um, so if you just think, and, and at the end of the day, you ended up with a product which has, you know, made the lives of, you know, probably millions of MS patients around the world better, and which generated billions of high margin revenue for until it became generic, you know, and, and, and even now is still generating lower margin, but strong revenue for Teva. And it's, but that never, none of it, none of it, none of it would have happened without Teva saying to themselves, look, we 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 didn't even know how to invent this molecule. We partnered with somebody who does that. That's what that's the Whiteman Institute. We knew how to take that molecule and get it through the regulatory approval. But now we need somebody who knows how to market to doctors in the field, and we didn't know how to do that. And so they partnered with that. So I think that studying successful partnership practices for young entrepreneurs in this climate tech green area is, is a challenge that I would I would suggest they take upon themselves. It's a great question, by the way. I never really thought about it, but I feel like I came up with a with a with a good answer. So actually I'm gonna take this back and tell some of my own entrepreneurs <laughs> some of this advice as well. I so. welcome you to take that with you. I invite you. Um, just on that point, I want to emphasize as well, you know, I've been in a lot of discussions as well um, about IP and sustainability. And to some degree, um, you know, often I do get criticisms. I'm not just a total uh, blink, uh, blindfolded IP uh, practitioner of sorts, um, because there's always a concern, right? That IP means almost that you're sewing up your technology and you're limiting it. Um, but I want to emphasize the absolute aim, at least from my point of view, right, is encouraging technology to be uh, to be spread, to be leveraged. So the aim of the IP isn't that I'm inventing something and keeping it to myself for that sake. That's not the point of it. The point is that first it's being published to the world. So if I, for example, have got a patent and I patented in America and Europe and China, um, and I don't patent it everywhere in the world, it's public information and in all those other countries it can be taken and used, okay? So that's amazing blessing you're giving to societies around the world. But the second thing, as you said, for deal flow, for business flow, it's a currency that I can trade in afterwards. So I put my technology out, I even if I patented my core technology, whatever it may be, the aim is to trade. The aim is to make deals. And as you said, form partnerships. And that's one of the ways we can help do that. But I do want to ask you, um, just in closing, 
what is your if I had to give you a if if you're suddenly walking in a cave in in the in the Yuna Desert and you see a bottle with a genie in it and the genie comes out and says, Jack, how could you change the world? What wish have you got to make the world more sustainable and green and beautiful? What would you wish for? If uh, I had a genie, uh, you know what um, what would what wish would I make for in order to develop progress on the green uh, uh, and climate uh, related problems? And I and I answered it that I think that uh, if we if we could if I had a wish and I could cause the change the hearts and minds of people to love each other as they love themselves and to really view us all with one common humanity and one common destiny, I think we would then have the global political willpower to address the challenges that we have. Because I think that the technologies are in hand. I really believe that. And we will continue to innovate and bring them. But we ha they have to be motivated. I believe that business is the right approach because I believe in a, a capitalism drives innovation and, and people want to profit from the innovation and they'll work harder if they think that they're going to make the lives of their immediate families better. But I also think that in this space, there are a lot of multinational policy opportunities and challenges. And if somehow we had the, if we were to view, I was giving this example, if we were to view the, that Pakistani, you know, a farmer who suffered from massive climate change with these horrible floods that happened as somebody that was as close to us, you know, as our own family. And it's very hard to do, and it's almost unnatural to do, but it's something that if we were to take that approach on a multinational policy level, then we would find ways to bring carbon tax to the world. And if we were to do that, then we would be accelerating the pace of development of these technologies in the right way, because we'd be bringing the externality into the product on the hydrocarbons. And that's fair. And that's right. Like my Reagan trained economist taught me when I was a young college student. And so I think, uh, I think it, 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 what we need to do it is to be a little less narrow and selfish about say our own family tribe nation. We have to view this as a collective human problem. And I think if we did that together, and, 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 and but on the flip side of it, of course, it also means that we won't have sort of bad state actors who will then take advantage of it. Like I, I told the story of the Chinese taking advantage of the photovoltaic market and they and they competed unfairly. And that's wrong too. So if all of us, if I had the genie and all of us really viewed each other's success as, as equal, I think that we would have much better political outcomes to incentivize and, and bring about the progress that I think technologically is within reach. Okay, well, Jack, that's amazing because I do also share that optimism that technology is incredible and we're making huge strides forward. And I think a lot of our problems could be solved by technologically solved at least, but it needs the political will to push those changes through and to equalize them all over. But I also share a certain optimism and um, I take your your wish from the genie um, that you've got a more of a, a greater structure than just a green kind of focus because yes to change the hearts and minds of people that we can work together we can kind of find a consensus around uh, themes that um that, that we can all work together to build a world that's better for all of our grandchildren not just ours living in our city which we share the same city but um but for all of us so on that note of optimism and of uh, marriage of technology 
and our values, which is what I've been talking about a lot lately. I'm going to just like really thank you for sharing, for taking the time to give your perspective, to share your vision, to share some dreams, to share some optimism. And uh, I really appreciate it. Look forward to the next conversation. Look forward to being in touch again after this call. And I want to wish you and all the listeners all the best, uh, continued success in this mission that we're on. And I uh, hope we can make the world a better place every day. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Yaron. I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to continuing it. Thank you for listening to Green Focus. We hope you were inspired by the episode. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts in order to stay updated when future episodes are released.